1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is the word of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. As you are, would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you indeed speak to us in your word, and we ask you to do so now. Speak to us in and through it that we might all the more hunger for your word. Speak to us that we might all the more hunger and thirst for righteousness. Speak to us that we might all the more hunger for Jesus our Lord. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've been looking at, taking part in, observing the video devotionals we've been putting out every day. I hope you have, and if you have, I hope that they've been a blessing to you. In one of our devotionals this past week, we were looking at Matthew chapter 16, and in that passage, Jesus and the disciples came to Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, essentially, what's the word on the streets? Who do people say that I am? And they responded, well, there, there's lots of rumors going around, Jesus. Some people are saying that, that you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Others are saying perhaps you're Elijah or Jeremiah or, or one of the other prophets. And Jesus says, well, that's all fine and dandy, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am, he asks. And Peter responds on behalf of the disciples, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Ding, 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 right answer, right? You are the Christ, the Son of God. It's interesting what Jesus says to him at that point. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, what he's saying to him is this. You have the answer right. What you speak is truthful. But you could not have known that on your own. The only way that you can know that truth, the only way that you can come to a place of faith, of trusting in Christ Jesus, of knowing that he is the Messiah, of knowing that he is the Son of God, is through the working of God in our hearts by the power of his Spirit. You see, when we come to faith, we do not do so by being smarter than the other people who didn't come to faith. We don't do so by being better than them. It's not that we have less sin in our life that obscures 
the way to faith. No, it's not that. It's not that, that we're more creative or, or, or more imaginative. It's not just that we are placed in situations with better circumstances or influences that were more conducive to faith. No, we come to faith by being born of God. That quite simply is what needs to happen. And if you are born of God, if you are therefore the children of God, there are certain things that will be true of you, certain family traits, as it were. And John speaks about those there. He says that you will love one another. He says that you will obey God's commands. He says you will overcome the world. Now, now we need to realize that love cannot be divorced from obedience, and obedience only, only comes through overcoming, and so there's a sense in which John kind of seamlessly moves from one topic to another in this, but he starts out here, as he does in many of his arguments throughout the, the letter of 1 John, with love. We must love one another. Everyone, he says in verse 1, who loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of him. But in preparation of that fact, he points out before that that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It's interesting if we look at different uh, translations of the Bible, there's there's a little bit of a a difference in how different translations uh, report this. The King James Version or the New King James Version both say say that whosoever or whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That's the same thing the NIV does. It says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. But I think the ESV does a better job at getting at the truth here of of how the text actually presents itself in the Greek and also really the theological truth that stands behind it. Those who believe in Jesus, it says, have been born again. Not is born again, but but has been born again. You, You catch the difference in the tense there in the Greek that stands behind it, the, the believing takes place in the present tense, right? Believes is a present tense, but, but the verb has been born, or the is born, as those other versions put it, is not in the present tense. It's in what's called the perfect tense. And, and the idea, without getting too much into the grammar of it all, is the perfect tense speaks of something that has happened in the past that has current implications that continues from when it happened in the past and is brought into the present, right? So you can see how the idea of having been born fits that. You you were born back in the past and you are alive still today as a result of that. John Stott puts it this way. He says, our present continuing activity of believing is the result and therefore the evidence of our past experience of new birth by which we become and remain God's children. And here's why that's important. It points to the sovereignty of God in the whole process of salvation. Specifically in this, lots of people say, well, we do the good work of believing, right? That that's our part. We we need to come to faith, we need to figure things out, we need to do that, And that is how we become born again. But John, along with all the other biblical authors, really, say no, that's that's not actually how it works. The birth comes before the belief. 
The idea is that, that our eyes are blind, our ears are deaf, our heart is a heart of stone, and unless the Spirit works in a way that gives us sight, that gives our ears the ability to hear the message, that gives us a heart of flesh in which the seed of faith could be planted, unless we are given new life through the power of the Spirit, we cannot respond to the message of God. R.C. Sproul says it this way, he says, regeneration is the divine work of God the Holy Spirit upon the minds and souls of fallen people by which the Spirit quickens those who are spiritually dead and makes them spiritually alive. The supernatural work rescues the person from his bondage to sin and his moral inability to incline himself toward the things of God. You see, we, we can't come to God unless he has given us this new life. Jesus put it quite simply in John chapter six. He said, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and unless it is granted to him by the Father. He says, nobody can come to him unless the Father works in that way. Furthermore, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Right? He's, he's saying both ways there. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and no one will come to me unless the Father brings them. God is sovereign in that process. But here's the great news. Once he has called us, he will bring us to him. We can be sure of that, and we will be forever a part of the family of God at that point. We are forever a part of the family of God, and, and everyone, he says here, who loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of him. If you love the Father, you will love those who have been born of Christ Jesus. That's just a fact, that's what he says. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you should also expect to be loved by those who are of Christ Jesus. And frankly, there are times that we fall short of this, aren't there? I'm sure as you sit there in the pews today, as, as you watch online, as you hear my words, I'm sure that there are times that you can think of in your life where the, where the church has let you down, where the church has not loved you in the way that it ought to have loved you. And I'm sure if we're honest with ourselves here in the church, we can think of times when we have not loved others as we ought to have loved them. And we need to own that. We need to realize that this is the responsibility that has been laid upon us by the word of God and that we fall short. And I just want to apologize for that. I want to apologize on behalf of, of the church at large, other churches, other people, on behalf of myself. The reality is we have failed time and time again. And going forward, we will fail some more. But let us commit ourselves to loving well with the love of God. And where we fail to love well, let us, when it is brought to our attention, realize that sin, confess that sin, repent of that sin, and love well from there on. It's something that I've been increasingly convicted of as I've looked through uh, this letter of 1 John these last number of weeks. Uh, probably because it is a letter that is so much about love. And 
too often, we, we simply think in terms of, 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 I will love the people that I want to love, and then the rest of the people, you know, I'm not going to be mean to them. I'm not going to be, be hateful toward them. I'm just going to kind of, they can do their thing. And I'll just, I'll just be concerned with the people that, that, that I'm most concerned with and those other people I, I don't have to worry about. But John has said throughout this letter that there really is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. We can't say, I, I love these people and, and then everybody else I just kind of am neutral toward and then I don't hate anybody. Because the reality is, John says throughout his letter here, that, that either we love people or we hate them. L- hate, hatred is the absence of love. If we're not actively loving people, we are hating them. And there's no room for hate within the church. Right? We need to love one another. By this, verse two says, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. The evidence, verse one, is seen in the loving obedience to God. We, we, we're called by God to love God and love our neighbor, right? And who is our neighbor? We go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, right? It's, it's whoever that we come into contact with that stands in need of our mercy, in need of our love, right? So, so whoever we come across, whoever, whoever we, we become involved with whoever the Lord brings across our path that stands in need of mercy, that stands in need of love, that stands in need of grace, that stands in need of kindness. They are our neighbor and we are, are, are responsible to love them well. This includes non-Christians. It includes even, even those people who are diametrically opposed to us in all their ways of thinking, who have a worldview that says up is down and in is out and right is wrong, we are still called to love them well. Now this passage specifically, though, talks about loving one another within the family of God. Right, so the idea is what Paul says in Galatians 6. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is what we're commanded to do here. This is, this is what we are commanded to do. It is a family trait that we obey God's commands. That's the second point, right? For this is the love of God, verse three, that we keep his commandments. He says this is the love of God. Now that could mean a couple different things. It, it first off could mean love for God, right? My my love of God is my love for God. It's like my love of family might be my love for my family. Right? And if we see it that way, that our love for God is what it's talking about, then it's talking about our motivation to act. Right? We have a love for God and that motivates us to act. This love exhibits itself in that way. It acts out in that way. Just like the love of my family, the love for my family, motivates me to act in certain ways and to do certain things. But, but it can also mean something different. The love of God could be God's love, the love that belongs to God, the love that God has. It could be his love actually toward us is what it could be re- referring to. If, if that's what it means, then then it, it, it's saying that the ability to love actually comes from God, who is love, right? So that, so that this love then 
isn't just our motivation, it becomes our, our example and even our empowerment as his spirit dwells within us. I think at the end of the day, it's probably both, right? God is our motivation. He is our example. He is our empowerment. And all of this comes together in Christ Jesus, who showed us perfect love on the cross where he died for our sins, right? He, he paid the full price for our sins. He took it all upon himself. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Those are the words of Christ. That is the life of Christ. That is the example of Christ. It is precisely what he has done for us. And if we cling to him by faith, trusting that we cannot save ourselves, but that he has paid the price for our sins, then we might know life in him. But if we know life, then we will we will love him and we will keep his commandments right what what are the commandments of god now that, that there are some who would who would say there there are any number of hundreds of hundreds of commandments but but jesus says pretty clearly in the scriptures that they really boil down to two main things don't they we are to love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself he says in Matthew 22 that on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, right? The whole of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, all hinge, all depend upon those two truths. Again, I, I don't know if you saw up a Friday's Lenten devotion, the video devotion that we did, uh, dealt with the transfiguration of Jesus and how on the the Mount of Transfiguration, who was he met with there but Elijah and Moses, right? Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, right? The the law and the prophets, all of them, you know, boiled down to love God and love your neighbor. And and these two figures representing that come together with Jesus and 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 we're reminded of, of what will later come on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 when when Jesus is with these two disciples and he opens up the scriptures to them and he shows them how all the law and the prophets point to him. Right? So when we bring these two ideas together, we see that all the law and the prophets point to love. And all the law and the prophets point to Jesus. Right? And we realize very quickly, don't we, that Jesus is love. Love incarnate, and that makes sense, of course, because Jesus is God, and God is love. And so, so Jesus, this perfect example of love, has, has shown us in his life what it means to love. And if he dwells in you, then his commandments will not be burdensome. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, verse 3 says, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not a, a heavy weight that is strapped upon us that we have to bear. That's how we act sometimes, do we not? That the laws of God are just so hard and they make my life so miserable and it's so uncomfortable and it's so hard to have to live according to these laws, but that's to see it completely wrong. That's, that's what the Pharisees did. They strapped these laws to them. Jesus says, says to them that, that you tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. It's a picture like, 
like from Pilgrim's Progress, those of you who are going through the, going through the Sunday school class through Pilgrim's Progress right now, the, the burden that he carried on his back, right? But, but, but he doesn't go through all of life carrying that burden, does he? He, he has it removed and is laid at the foot of the cross. And so it is that, that we do not go through life with a heavy burden. Jesus tells us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, he has fulfilled the requirements of the law. He has freed us from its tyranny and bondage. He has changed our relationship with the commandments of God. No longer are they something that we need to accomplish in order to try to be made right with God, to to achieve our own righteousness. Rather, now they are ways of living out life in response to his love, with him having already achieved our righteousness. Our obedience is is an obedience that is motivated and equipped and empowered by God. William Barclay puts it this way. I love this quote. He says, our response to God must be the response of love. And for love, no duty is too hard and no task is too great. That is so true, isn't it? For love, no duty is too hard and no task is too great. That which we would never do for a stranger, we willingly attempt for a loved one. What would be an impossible sacrifice if a stranger demanded it becomes a willing gift when love needs it. Barclay goes on to tell the story of a, of a young boy who was on his way to school. This was back in the day before school buses. And he walked to school. He, he went there with a smaller boy on his back, this boy who, who clearly couldn't walk. And he carried him along the way and a stranger stopped him and he asked him, he said, do you carry that smaller boy to school every day? And the boy said, yes, sir, I do. And the man said to him, well, my goodness, that's quite a burden, isn't it? And the boy responded, he's not a burden, he's my brother. You see, love changes everything, right? (laughs) Because if it was just some random person that he had to carry on his back, it would have been a burden. But it it wasn't a random person. It was a beloved brother. Love changes everything. That's what William Cooper, the great English hymnist and friend of John Newton, captured in his hymn, Love Constrained to Obedience. He said, no strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright. And what she has, she misapplies for want of clearer light. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress, I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. The point was, he tried and worked and and tried and tried and did all he could to, to accomplish his own righteousness, to follow the law by his own strength, and he found he failed every time, and he was filled with frustration, filled with sorrow, filled with grief, filled with such a burdensome feeling. But then he spends the rest of his song contrasting what life was like then 
and what life is now like in Christ Jesus, he says, then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now I feel its power within and I feel I hate it too. Then my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise, now freely chosen in the Son. I freely choose his ways. What shall I do was then the word, that I may worthier grow. What shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now. You see, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. You see, Satan lies to us and he he tells us that the law of God is burdensome, that it is some means by which God wants to steal joy from us. He wants to be the, the thief of joy, robbing it from us, that he's keeping some good thing from us somehow. But nothing could be further from the truth that's been the lie of Satan from all the way back in Genesis, hasn't it? Genesis 3, he, he comes to Eve and he tells her, eat of it, you will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will become like him. He says, God just doesn't want you to have this good thing. You should take it for yourself. Satan's lie to her is the same lie he tells us, and we believe him every time we sin. Oh, that we would believe the goodness of God who has always been faithful, as opposed to the lies of Satan who has always been a deceiver. May we change our minds. May God change our minds. So that no longer is his word seen as a burden, but rather is seen as good and perfect and acceptable. The mindset of the psalmist, we sang it earlier in Psalm 119, right? Wonderful are your statutes. I open wide my mouth and pants. Oh, how I love your law. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired than gold, even fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The law of the Lord is not a burden, it is a blessing. So let us see it as such. Obeying for the believer is a glorious possibility not a depressing impossibility. And in that truth, we overcome the world. Verse four, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, the world, the the broken, sinful, fleshly ways of mankind, our natural state of, of turmoil and tribulation and opposition to God, that we're, naturally born into those ways that burden us and bind us and leave us defeated. What he is saying is that in Jesus, as the women sang before, we have victory. We have victory already over these things. Jesus says it. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart I have overcome the world. And John says here that those who have been born again of God, who 
are united with Christ through faith, share in that victory. And there's nothing that could ever take it away. Right? Paul says so, Romans 8, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a great and wonderful promise. How is it that we can share in this victory? Well, it says that this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You see, sin and Satan and death are our great enemies but it is our faith that unites us with the one who has conquered these enemies already. Eric Alexander says, the one who defeated death dwells in you. And if he defeated death, he can defeat anything. And that's why the glorious possibility of living a life conformed to the will of God is a reality for the Christian believer. Because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Not just checking off a box, not just signing off on a statement, not just mouthing some words to a prayer, no, truly believing, truly trusting truly depending upon Jesus, depending on him to make you right, depending on him to make all things right. Have you depended upon Jesus? Have you thrown your whole self on him? Have you placed your eternal self in his hands? Have you depended not on your own abilities, but upon his righteousness as you come before God. If you haven't, I, I plead with you to do so today. Realize that you cannot raise up a righteousness from yourself, but he offers you his perfect righteousness. And he offers it to you today. Cling to him through faith and be united with him and let his victory be your victory. That doesn't mean we'll never fall again in sin, but it does mean that sin will no longer be our natural state, our de facto existence. It means when we are confronted in our sin, our natural condition will be to, to, to resist it and to confess it and to repent of it and to take it to the cross and have it paid for there to walk in the victory that Jesus has purchased for us. Does that sound good to you? It sounds good to me. It sounds like all I could ask for. It sounds almost too good to be true. And perhaps it would be, were it not for the fact that God has always been faithful to his promises. He has never failed them once. He has a track record of faithfulness that tells us going forward we can trust him perfectly and so you can depend upon him. He has and will always be faithful to us. Let us therefore respond in faithfulness 
to him. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Amen. Lord, help us to know this truth. Help us to know, not just intellectually, but from the very tips of our toes to the top of our head, let us know that you are faithful. You are faithful. You can be trusted. You can be depended upon. And that Christ Jesus has has lived a life of perfect faithfulness, of perfect righteousness, of perfect obedience, of perfect love. And he offers it to us. May we know such a life by faith. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Together, hymn number 245, Great is Thy Faithfulness.
Now receive the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.